Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase have got me a tag team partner. And he's the greatest tag team partner that anybody in the world could ever have. Well, ain't you, From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Grappolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibitions. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Sit, Ubu, sit. Good dog. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 219 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host Peter Winson and today I'm really thrown off right now by a number of different things. Anyway, this is episode 219 and this is WWF Superstars from July 30th, 1988. Jeez, maybe I should go back to doing this weekly because <laughs> doing it every other week I'm forgetting stuff. Number one, I almost forgot to bring the microphone over to me when I started talking, which is kind of important because you just hear like an echo chamber down here recording it. Number two, yeah, this is July 30th, 1988, but when I saved the file on my computer, it's 1989, apparently. I don't know if that's a Freudian thing and that I really wanted to do that or whatever. And also, I, I chose the headphones that I can only hear uh, from one ear. So as I'm talking over the intro, sometimes I don't load the intro in before I start talking. It's just behind the curtain or whatever but i can hear the end of the superstars theme but it's only coming through in one ear and it's it's driving me insane especially since i have a freaking little weird blockage in my left ear that has been off and on and i've only learned stop sleeping on your left side all the time because that's part of the problem with the ear but anyway this period right here july of 88 i've said many times the first wrestling that i ever watched was the 1988 royal rumble and then I really got into it after WrestleMania 4. So this is right now the greatest innocence of my fandom. I almost sound like Justy Rosette like that. I offered up my innocence and she repaid me in scorn. Even though he was ripping off Bob Dylan when he did that. But the, the main thing on this show, which is an interview with the macho man Randy Savage, the undisputed World Wrestling Federation champion, as they would bill him at the time, had to accept a challenge from the Mega Bucks for an upcoming match at a debuting pay-per-view, the SummerSlam, as Bret Hart says, but apparently it's not just Bret Hart who does that. But before I get into all that, why don't I get in my plugs? You can email the show, greasevalentown at gmail.com. It did feel good to go answer some emails. Somebody wrote an email in, in April when I got back to them like last week, like, oh, geez, really should really should do this more. Uh, Facebook.com slash blah, 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 and on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. Now, I had originally planned to do this show last week, 
And I, I don't know, apparently I just did not have my act together for whatever reason. But that's fine because, frankly, not only do people podcast, maybe you should take a break and experience life that they weren't able to do for a while. But also the listeners of the podcast, you know, you're, you're out doing doing different things. I, 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 I get it as well. But also, this is that five or six minutes of the podcast where I just talk about whatever. And when I started to take my notes for last week's show, all I wrote was Massachusetts drivers. And I, I thinking back, I'm like, was I really going to do a seven-minute thing on the drivers in this state? Yes, we have a reputation and all. But really, it's an unspoken agreement that we have with each other that do not get in my way when I'm trying to get from point A to point B, all right? Yeah, we, we drive crazy, but we drive in control crazy, if, if that makes any sense. But honestly, you know, there there's other stuff going on. I, I was very pleased this past Saturday. And I know that this is kind of a hyper-local reference for Massachusetts, but it has to do with wrestling because every time WWE or any promotion, if, if Ring of Honor was running Boston, I would expect those guys to be at the Kowloon after the show in Saugus, Massachusetts. It's this giant building. It's a very unique-looking building. The way the, way the roof is kind of resembles a International House of Pancakes a little bit, but with an Asian motif, and when you, when you go inside, it's it's really incredible in there, just how enormous it is. And But unfortunately right now, they have a whole outdoor seating spot with a big screen TV. There was a Red Sox-Yankees game on. Well, that takes away some of the parking. So it can become a little bit of an adventure as I had to park behind this gate where some dude waved me in. It's like... I don't know if I want to do this with my still relatively new car where, you know, some, you know, five foot seven, <laughs> you know, fat Italian guy in Saugus just waving my car in and say, yeah, make sure you're out before 11 because the, the gate's locked then. It's like I'm looking at my you know, clock. It says 730. I'm like, am I really going to spend three and a half hours in a Chinese restaurant? But at, at the Kowloon, you, you can. You absolutely can. Because I could sit there and I can eat Chinese food for days. Now, maybe not too many days because since then, we've had this little heat wave here in New England. Although, apparently, it's relatively minor because I saw something like Portland, Oregon was 118 degrees. Now, I've walked around Portland and it's fairly walkable city. But, I mean, that has to be just freaking unbearable, especially when you consider the fact that Rarely does it even get to like 90, 95 degrees in the fairly temperate Pacific Northwest. 118 degrees? Whatever. That is some Death Valley stuff. And I'm not talking about, you know, Undertaker's kayfabe hometown. I'm talking about the real place where it was 134 degrees back in like 1931 or whatever at Badwater Basin, which. I really only know because I went to the spot and it's basically like like a salt marsh or whatever. I do recommend anybody go to Death Valley, California, Death Valley National Park if you can. It's it is, it is quite a sight there, but don't go between the months, like late April to the end of September. Yeah, just don't don't bother at that point because I went in like November and February. That that is the time to go. It's about a three hour drive from Las Vegas the home of the SummerSlam this year at Allegiant Stadium, which I I still don't know 
if they had events there with fans, because I know the Raiders played there, and I don't know if they even had fans last year. But the thing that confuses me, just to talk about SummerSlam a little bit, is they're running it in the football stadium. They're only using half the stadium, and, and that's fine because I, I don't know. I haven't checked on tickets recently, but there's a Manny Pacquiao fight going on. Now, I know Manny Pacquiao is approximately 67 years old at this point, but he's still one of the most famous boxers around. And it's very interesting that two events like that are happening in the same night in the, the football stadium and the hockey arena where T-Mobile Arena apparently is where the boxing match is. So who knows? We, we, we shall see. There's still another pay-per-view or they're not even called pay-per-views. They're called stupid shit on the network that where nothing happens because it is not a big four show. That is what they are. That's why. That's why the in your house shows. Like it reminds it reminds me of the in your house shows. The the eight non big four pay-per-views that they have now. And speaking of in your house, GFA Live this past weekend, Keithy and I we looked at in your house two, which I think that was in your house two, the lumberjacks. It's from July of 95, Sid versus the other guy, it's Diesel, for the world title in a lumberjack match. And we discuss lumberjack matches and a whole host of other things. So July 30th, 1988, just to rewind here, the, the taping here is in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which they certainly love that state, at least during that month in July of 88, because WrestleFest would be in Milwaukee on the 31st, which I also we also covered on GFA Live a couple of weeks ago. This was taped on July 13th, and this was, I think, the first out of the three tapings. For some reason, I neglected to write that down. However, some very interesting things occurred in the dark matches and on this show. The Powers of Pain with Tito Santana, yes, because the original story was Tito brought them in as mercenaries to go after demolition, but mainly that was just something done for the live crowd who may not have seen the Powers of Pain and to establish them as baby faces because Tito Santana is standing next to them. And God knows Tito Santana would not be friends with no heels. Oh, God, no. And they actually beat demolition in a non-title match on here. And then a lot of them is just, a lot of the other matches are just the feuds that were going on at the time that you weren't necessarily going to see one-on-one at SummerSlam. Jake the Snake and Ravishing Rick Rude, Andre the Giant Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Honky Tonk Man and Brutus Beefcake for the Intercontinental title. Well, you wouldn't see that at SummerSlam. They're still billing it at this point. And Randy Savage and Ted DiBiase, which you would see them on opposite sides. But we'll get more into that a little bit later. But also on this taping, they did some primetime wrestling, matches for primetime wrestling, that is. And on the August 1st edition, so right after this, the Conquistadors defeated the team of Sam Houston and Terry Taylor. Which cracks me up because after the bout, Terry Taylor was mad about losing, so he just beat the crap out of Sam Houston. Which he stole from Ted DiBiase. Now, I know a lot of people talk about the tailor-made man in WCW and how he was literally the lowest rent Ted DiBiase ripoff ever. But oh no, it didn't just start there. It goes back it goes back much further than that. But here, Ted DiBiase turned heel in 1987 by beating the crap out of Sam Houston because he found his effort in a match to be insufficient. But, you know, 
Sam Houston was just a little too small, but yeah, he ma- he makes a brief cameo appearance on this edition of Superstars, along with a lot of other guys who are about to have some main event runs in the Big Boss Man and Bad News Brown. As I said, we also get the interview with the Macho Man Randy Savage as well. The Rockers, who had only debuted about a month and a half before this, in fact, on the same show as the Big Boss Man. And we're also going to see, uh, uh, coming up first here, batting leadoff. I don't know if I would bat the Iron Sheik leadoff, but yes, he briefly made a return, and this is one of the few TV matches that he had during that return. And we also got Greg the Hammer, excuse me, Greg the Stoner Valentine in action as well, and a few others. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Why don't I just get right to it? It's WWF Superstars from July 30th, 1980. Sadly, we do not hear from Vince McMahon about what's going on in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, whether the ice capades are coming, whether you know Taylor Dane is going to be in concert or anything. It, it no word on anything that's going on. But for those of you who are not familiar with, I don't know, Midwest geography, Lacrosse, Wisconsin is on the border with Minnesota. So it is about as far from Milwaukee as you can get. It's probably I would assume that the people there would root for the Minneapolis, Minnesota sport teams. Uh, that, that's just my guess anyway. But we're in Wisconsin, and of course, you know, we got to talk about cheese. So it just feels like the obvious lead-in for, you know, Jesse and Vince to talk about. This week from the Lacrosse Center in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, it's the Superstars of Wrestling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Superstars of Wrestling. I'm Vince Japan, along with Jesse the Body Ventura. And boy, do we have action for you this week. Isn't this the cheese capital of the world, McMahon? Wisconsin, I believe so. That explains it. I thought it was you. Let's get down to action. I felt like I heard that one before, but it was actually, this is one of the clips that I pulled about a year or two ago when I was posting a lot of these superstars intros, usually for the Chamber of Commerce bit, but I think I posted that one. I don't know. I don't really feel like going back through my Twitter feed from two years ago to figure that out. What's interesting, though, is that Vince screws up and accidentally says undefeated when he meant to say undisputed with regard to Randy Savage. You know, I'd play that, but it really doesn't matter. It just feels like one of those stupid things, like, oh, gotcha, or like, you know, I, I know I know what he meant. I, I just think it's funny because usually Vince is fairly smooth at the top of these, and at the beginning of this, he, he did not sound smooth at all, so why don't we just go right into the first match. The return of the Iron Sheik to the superstars of wrestling, where he is taking on Scott Casey, and only one of these men will make it to the Survivor Series in 1988. Try and guess which one. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. But Scott Casey holds the distinction of being the very first wrestler that I ever talked about on a podcast. And I think I've mentioned this, that if you go back through the Laps fans' archives, I think it was episode 100, as a matter of fact, the 1988 Survivor Series, no surprise that I would pick that as the 
patron's choice for what that was back in the day. See, I got in when it was a lot more, lot less expensive <laughs> than whatever the people are paying now. Is like, I want to have a show devoted to Kevin Nash's 2007 shoot interview. And all right, I'll throw up my hands. <laughs> like, okay. But yeah, those, those guys are raking it in. But back in those days, it didn't cost quite as much. And the first thing I ever said on a podcast was, well, I chose this show because I'm the world's biggest Scott Casey mark. Because you always got to have something prepared as your intro line. What an amazing road back for the Iron Sheik. Busted with cocaine with his hated rival, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, on the Jersey Turnpike some 14 months before this. And now he's back because of Vince McMahon's odd loyalty to guys who, in Iron Sheik's case, didn't screw him over when he got the world title. He got it to Hogan safely, and everything was fine. So what the hell was he up to? Well, what was interesting, when you look at the Iron Sheik's cage match page is he actually does wrestle in the wwf it says later in 1987 he had two matches in europe with hacksaw jim duggan who had been rehired by that point now i don't know what the circumstances of that were i have no idea how the iron sheik was able to get out of the country given what he was accused of or if he had pled out already i have no idea he also did a few house shows in early 1988 in february so you didn't see him on TV until the WWF on Ness, and he was on the Boston Garden House show on July 9th, also against Scott Casey. And while I was surprised to see the October 87 and the early 88 stuff, he did go to other places. I knew that. Like, I had a vague recollection of him turning up in the AWA, but that doesn't happen until later in 1988 after this brief little run. He made a stopover in World Class, which in 1987 was not exactly an ideal place to be. It was a very, very crappy year in that promotion. He was on the Christmas Star Wars show at the end of the year. 1988, he turns up in Puerto Rico for a shot against Carlos Colon. I mean, 1988, Puerto Rico, you just say that, immediately your mind goes to Bruiser Brody, who's murdered in the shower there. Also in July of 88, only a couple of weeks before this aired, and only three days after this was even taped. He did appear in Central States and Canada by the end of 1988 as well. So, Shiki, you know, he was well-known. He could, he could go around, make a buck here and there, but, you know, an, an unconscionable breach of kayfabe, owing just to his massive love of drugs. Drugs was the reason why. <laughs> That's what got them in trouble there. I mean, if, if you don't get busted with cocaine, the marijuana, all right, that is what it is. I mean, it was 87. Things were a little different. But, yeah, the cocaine in 1987, and especially as a foreign guy like him, it's not exactly a, a great thing. So now we go to the Jesse and Vince McMahon bickering, which it, it happens aplenty on this show as... Jesse, who is usually an all-time truth teller, at least in a wrestling context, not going to endorse all the conspiracy theory stuff, but Jesse utters a complete falsehood about the Iron Sheik, who, I have to admit, he's put on a little weight. He's not quite in his WrestleMania X7 shape, but it's not the greatest situation that it could be. And Vince calls him out on it, just openly. You know, it's been a while, McMahon, since I've seen the Sheik, but for what I can tell, he looks in fine 
shape. He's been out training. He looks the same to me, which is not to say he was in bad shape before. Indeed, he's always been a physical specimen in the state of Leeds. Former World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion. Facts, wacky conspiracies. It's a Jesse Cornucopia we got here. But he's like, saying that the Iron Sheik is in good shape. Well, maybe not so much. And Vince is like, oh, it looks the same to me. And then Vince realizes, oh, shoot, I better walk that back because it makes it seem like here we got this fat guy walking to the ring. And, well, yeah, yeah, he's always been in terrific shape. And then he just kind of elaborates on that. As Vince then refers to Scott Casey as a young man, which I endorse because he was 41 years old at the time. And, yeah, while that is still younger than me right now, uh, yeah, I'm just going to say this guy Casey was young at this point in time. And Sheik attacks with the flag immediately. doesn't even let Casey get going in this bout. It starts choking him out with the garment, one of the robes or whatever that he would wear into the ring. He actually kept the robe on for a little bit. And sure enough, the Sheik, I mean, sure enough, when they brought it back, they probably was not expecting it to last as you know short a time as it did. Because they are going to give him an inset promo, but it's not not talking about any particular rival. Everybody know the Sheik is number one. Look at me, USA. And just kind of a standard fair Iron Sheik promo where I don't understand half the things that he's saying, especially that beginning part where I, I don't I, I couldn't even hark at a clue as to what he was saying. Welcome home, Sheiky. Just you know, don't make yourself too at home here because uh, don't don't get comfy, okay? Because it, it's not going to last very long. As I said, he, he keeps his robe on for quite a while, which, given his enlarged gut here, is probably not for. Not for the uh, worst, I would say. As Casey hits a leapfrog and it hits a right hand, but he now uses the garment on the Iron Sheik. But then Sheiky loads up the boot, as I would have him do in my LJN universe. He does that on the ring apron. And Casey, despite being a, being a youngster, is a ring veteran, but he makes a cardinal mistake by putting his head down. Sheiky kicks him in the face. It's probably why I ran that spot in my LJNs all the time. Is because I saw it on this show. I mean, I have to imagine. I saw I saw Sheiky on the Coliseum videos, but you didn't see as much of the loading of the boot. Gut wrench suplex, camel clutch finishes. But the interesting thing to note that Sheiky does for the camel clutch, he turns Scott Casey, I, I swear to you, about 160 degrees. So he's facing the hard camera so that he can get the shot, you know, where both Sheiky and Casey are facing hard camera. That is a guy who knows how to work. He is a guy who is not going to have to spend four years in NXT, which I I love how I've been making that joke for a long time. And in that time, I have come to realize that Johnny Gargano is literally in year seven in NXT. And yeah, I know it's because he wouldn't hack it on the main roster because of his size, but (laughs) it is is kind of funny. But yeah, Shiki, he's not going to NXT. You know why? Because he's probably going to get fired for something else before he would even get to the main roster. Anyway, even if NXT existed then.
Macho Man introduced that way kind of reminded me a few weeks ago, somebody on Facebook or Twitter or something put a thing that said, how do you say it? Is it Randy Macho Man Savage, as Craig DeGeorge says there, or is it Macho Man Randy Savage? Usually you would separate it out and have nickname and then Randy Savage, you know, the character name. But instead, to George, who probably doesn't give a crap because he's on his way out the door at this point. I think this is his last taping. I think his last appearance is a platform interview with Ron Bass. It's it's not exactly Ric Flair at WrestleMania 24 when it comes to exits. But, you know, he's going to turn up and hit Herb Abrams UWF. The Macho Man, Randy Savage, as the undisputed champion. And me being a new wrestling fan at the time. That, that, that confluence of events... It leads me to my contention that Randy Savage never looked better than he did in the summer of 1988. This is his apex. I love the outfits that he would wear around this time. They're not as colorful and outlandish as the stuff that you would see later. It was, it, it just screamed cool to me at the time. Now, maybe it's a function of my age and where I was in my wrestling watching. I mean, that certainly is important, but... He had been attacked by DiBiase, Andre, Virgil, and Bobby Heenan even got in a few shots as well. At the last taping, which aired on July 9th, so it was the episode three weeks before this, and here we are on July 13th. So I hope the people in this crowd watched the previous week's superstars so they would have the context of what the Macho Man is going to talk about. Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen this time, no. Last time that I was interviewed out here on this exact same platform, Bobby Weasel Heenan and Andre the Giant came strolling right out here. I'm telling you, this which made me easy pickings for Andre the Giant, Ted DiBiase, and Bobby Heenan. And that's not gonna happen this time. And I'll tell you something else that's not gonna happen this time. And that is Virgil, the bodyguard of the million dollar man, of the man with the dirty money. Because Virgil came out here and put his dirty, slimy hands on my manager Elizabeth's shoulders and forced her to watch. Look at that. Another flashback. Seems to have a real problem with Virgil. Maybe it's the fact that he's particularly well endowed and standing behind Elizabeth. (laughs) When I was watching this, I was getting a little annoyed at Vince and Jesse, which is very unlike me, for them talking over the world champion. Like, the bickering between, like, lines, it was just very annoying. It's like, I can understand if you're doing this for a Ron Bass interview, but doing it for a... I know that the hype machine is on for SummerSlam, and Jesse is obviously a very integral part of it. It's just that you got the world champion on there. I'd like to hear what he has to say. 
Bobbine. Look at that. That's disgraceful. It's disgraceful, but I'll tell you what, the Macho Man looks totally helpless inside them big paws of Andre the Giant, don't he? Come on, it's a double team. That's no double team right there. That's not going to happen this time. And the reason that it's not going to happen this time is because right now at this very second, I've got somebody watching my back. Mm. Somebody I can trust. Ooh, Elizabeth. Somebody. Not a good she did last time, right, McMahon? I don't think that's... Somebody in this building right now. And that somebody is my tag team partner. And I've got me a tag team partner. Andre the Giant and Ted DiBiase. I've got me a tag team partner. And he's the greatest tag team partner that anybody in the world could ever have. Well, it ain't you, Vince. Now, I know I played that at the top of the show. Well, it ain't you, Vince, but it is one of my favorite Vince and Jesse moments ever. <laughs> it's just the little snide comments that happen just under the radar on interviews. There's another one on the Brother Love show from Wrestling Challenge right before SummerSlam where Jesse himself is on there and <laughs> he's basically talking himself up as he always does and Gorilla Monsoon mutters, it's hard to be humble when you're great. Stuff like that always has stick with, stuck with me. So now Hulk Hogan makes his return. Of course, the crowd goes crazy and he's wearing the Hulkamania shirt and, well, he's yoked to the gills, for lack of a better expression. Before Hogan goes into the promo, I just have to mention how it is strange with these the formation of the Mega Powers, which I guess gets codified in a way here, but this is almost a full year after the original, which was the October 1987 Saturday Night's Main Event, where Hogan gets dragged out of the locker room to save the Macho Man from the Honky Tonk Man and the Heart Foundation. So it's been a long time, and they were kept apart. In the meantime, like Ted and Andre, like the the Mega Bucks versus Mega Powers match, I don't know if they had a plan for a summer pay-per-view. But instead of Hogan and Savage, they had Hogan and Bam Bam Bigelow. And then when Bigelow got hurt, it was Hogan and Duggan against Andre and DiBiase. So it's interesting from that perspective how Savage is off doing his own thing. He was pursuing the IC title right up through the main event. And then he gets into the he's in the tournament for WrestleMania four wins that tournament and now he's the world champion so there's no need for them necessarily to tag but what is interesting they were in a six man in November of eighty seven in Vancouver the Mega Powers 
And Hacksaw Jim Duggan took on Harley Race, King Harley Race, King Kong Bundy, and Ravishing Rick Rude. I wonder if Rude felt left out because he was the only guy without King in his name. And they also teamed up the only time Hogan and the Macho Man, up through SummerSlam 88, that is, versus the Hart Foundation and the Honky Tonk Man. I believe that was on the WWE unreleased DVD 86 to 95, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And that's it. That, that's the only time those guys have teamed up. So there are certain details. You want to get the continuity. And you got to hash everything out before you step into the ring, right? You know something, Macho Man? I like your style, brother. I know where you're coming from. I know where you're going because I've been there. But there's one thing, Macho Man. You've only made one mistake. And that mistake is, brother, when you're the WWF champion, you should know whenever you dial on the telephone, they're going to be trying to wiretap you, trying to monitor your calls. You should have known that the local operator would be the stool pigeon that would make the phone call you made when you asked me to be your tag team partner. The call that would be heard around the world. But that's okay. First thing. Hogan's very paranoid about wiretaps at this time. Although, of course, later, in a much more famous instance, he would forget to check to see if, oh, there might be cameras in the room. Gee, thanks a lot, Bubba the Love Sponge, for what you gave us there. We don't care about the phone call that Andre the Giant and the Million Dollar Man know about it. We don't care because, number one... You and I are fighting for different things, man. You and I are fighting for the love of all those Hulkamaniacs, for the love of all the madness, yeah. Number two, Macho Man, you and I are fighting for the same lady, brother. She is now our manager, and you and I are fighting for her honor, Macho Man. No way, I don't think so. <laughs> But the third thing, Macho Man, the third thing we're fighting for is for the cause. Bill Cosby? Just like the phone call that was heard around the world, the handshake between you and me that will unite us as one being, the handshake of the madness and the mania together will formally be felt and around the world. We will make the world stand still because this is the first public shaking of the mega powers, brother. Whoa! Indeed, this is the first public mega powers handshake. You have to be very specific here because they did it, it they did shake hands in the ring on the Saturday Night's main event after Hogan saved Savage. And then they went to the back, had the interview with Oakland, did a kind of Mega Powers handshake. I would say close enough, but that's not in public. That That's in the back, so it is not before the fans. So technically, this is the first one. But Jesse pointing out, oh, that's going to be a problem, McMahon. And Savage makes a few mannerisms where he kind of turns and is like, hmm, you didn't clear this with me before you came out here and decided to say that. It, it had that kind of vibe, but... Okay, all right, it's still very early. We have no reason to believe that Hogan would be up to anything. So now H Hogan has said his piece, and now it's the Macho Man's turn. He's the world champion. He should be allowed to speak again. But Hogan, once again, kind of makes it a little bit awkward, I'd say. Through that summer slam, Nick, 
the 29th in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, the Summer Slams. When the Mega Powers go down that aisle, yeah, what happens? When Ted DiBiase and Andre the Giant are put away in all forms of transportation in New York City, all the limos, all the taxis, all the airplanes come to a complete okay that's okay because you and i have given fair warning to all my little hosters we've given fair warning to all your madness maniacs they'll be there they'll be watching but there's one final point i have to clear up with you macho man the thing that's on my mind that i want you to know is that when we step in the ring, man, and the lovely Elizabeth is in our corner, she's my lady too, brother, because from now on, with the mega powers united as one, she guides every step of the way, signs every contract, and is our inspirational force that will help us overcome all odds. And what are they gonna do when the mega powers come running through? This is one of those things where I wish I was privy to any sort of conversation that Hogan and Savage had had. So maybe I wish that there was a wiretap because I would like to hear the nature of these talks. I know I've said this for other pairings that have gotten together, but for this one, I swear, because it was so planned out well leading up to WrestleMania V and this whole storyline that it wouldn't surprise me. you got seeds being planted right now. She's my lady too. Kind of a bold declaration there, even though, of course, it's never stated that Elizabeth is anything more than a manager for Randy Savage. Anybody watching with eyes could see, all right, yeah, there's some sort of relationship going on here. We're not going to name what it is. They're not a husband and wife team, at least the characters. So it, it, it just is. And now Hogan is inserting himself into this. Did he get permission to do this? It doesn't seem to be that way, but then Savage is kind of apparent. He might have given permission and then later just sort of regretted it. You know, one of one of those things. And Jesse just eagerly pointing this out. So you got big seeds being planted. Obviously, if you were going to pull anything at SummerSlam, you, you're not going to split the, these guys then. It's just too soon. You got to let everything fester for a while. You got to have one little thing here, one little thing there. You know, a look at SummerSlam. Where Hogan puts his hand on her ass, you know, celebrating after the match. And then at Survivor Series, he puts Elizabeth up on his shoulders. And then it just descends from there. And this whole storyline, though, even beyond the Mega Powers formation and and split and all all that, right here, this tag match was everything to me because it was the main event of the first pay-per-view that I was going to see live. And also a changing of the guard in some ways. DiBiase is going to be on to other things, finally, and will leave the world title picture. But he was always like a microwave guy where they could just heat him up and throw him on Saturday Night's Main Event against a Hogan or a Warrior or something to that effect. But it, it was, I thought, the last time you would ever see Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant in the same ring. And to my knowledge, that is still correct. However, it has recently come to my attention that there was a match shortly before WrestleMania 6 in March of 1990 that was Hulk Hogan and the Big Boss Man against the Colossal Connection. 
I don't know how that match came. Just in a random house show, I have no idea if Hogan and Andre were ever in the ring together or what the deal was. But so yes, a, a changing of the guard at that first SummerSlam, where every everybody's going to be moving on to to different stuff afterwards. But we're also going to plant that seed for the Mega Powers split. But we're going to let it fester for about uh, six, seven more months. Yeah, I'm kind of back to the Golden Girls bumpers a little bit because I've been watching a lot of it lately in late nights. And I did see one of the worst, actually the worst episode of the Golden Girls that there ever was. No, it's not the one where Rose thought she had AIDS or the one where Dorothy and the whole chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, no, 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 no. This is the end of season two, I believe it was, where they decided it just mid-episode, all of a sudden it shifted and became a backdoor pilot for Empty Nest. Now, I don't know why I have to do this, but I feel compelled to do it because a lot of people in their criticism of the episode, call it a spinoff. It is not a spinoff. There is an important difference between a spinoff and a backdoor pilot. And yes, I just enjoy saying the phrase backdoor pilot because it makes me laugh. In a spinoff, you are taking an existing character from a series and spinning them off onto a new series. Example, the Jeffersons were a spinoff of All in the Family because they were established characters within that universe. Here, they just took characters out of whole cloth and just said, okay, you should care about these characters who you've never seen before this episode and will never see on the Golden Girls again, in part, even though they have the crossover with Empty Nest, they would recast it with Dick Mulligan. They tried it with Paul Dooley and Rita Moreno, by the way, are both past 90 years old and both still alive. That That's good to see. But the episode was a complete disaster. It had A lot of Golden Girls episodes have a rating, you know, 7 or 8 on IMDb. That one is 3.5. And it, it truly is bad. So, yeah, they tried to do the backdoor pilot for Empty Nest and then had to completely recast it a year later. But enough about, enough about TV history here. We got Greg the Stoner Valentine up next, facing an unknown... And I don't recognize the guy at all. Like, I, it literally says unknown in all the match results. Maybe I should have checked cage match, but who really cares? But even though Valentine's in there, he's in the feud with The Rock, Don Morocco, having attacked superstar Billy Graham on Superstars a couple of weeks before. Well, actually, it was six weeks before this. It was the June 18th. That one was very <laughs> consequential because of the boss man and The Rocker's debut. And I did cover that all the way back in episode 22. But even though he's got all that going on, we're right back to Vince and Jesse bickering about the pending officiating assignment for the body. McMahon, getting back to my refereeing coming up. Yeah. You know what I like about this? I am in the position of power. I mean, it's obvious both sides are going to think that, you know, where's Jesse's favoritism could lie. Oh, I think that has I'll tell you mind. what, the first thing I'm going to do from this point, I'm, I'm going to make Hulk Hogan call me Sir or Mr. Ventura. You what? Yeah. I'm the boss in that ring. I think second of all, I may want Liz to come over maybe to my place and do a little yard work. I love it because it was only one week earlier where Jesse was announced as the guest referee for this SummerSlam match. And he's already plotting out all of the power moves that he's going to do. And I've mentioned it a lot of times before how Jesse changes the tag ropes prior to the match. And he clearly did that 
as sort of a power move so that Hogan would go up to him and be like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So Jesse could be like, you get the hell out of my face. Actually tapped him on the shoulder and said, you keep your hands off of me. Yeah, I mean, if you think this is the end of talking about Jesse as a referee, it just permeates every pore of this show. Back suplex and a chop by Valentine. And we do hear from... I almost call him the Magnificent Morocco, but no, he's a face now, so he's the rock. You know, Hammer, ever since you Pearl Harbor superstar Billy Graham, every day for me has been sunshine and roses. Because every time my head gets off the pillow, every time I look out the door, I know that today is Valentine's Day. This is another one of those feuds where you write the two names down on paper, Morocco and Valentine. You're talking about two former Intercontinental Champions. So within the context of the World Wrestling Federation, this should be a bigger deal. But then you look at the calendar, and it's 1988. It's an old joke. What do you call a rock with steroid bloat? Don Morocco, of course. But Valentine and Morocco, this feud just did not work, in spite of the good promo there by Morocco. I have to hand it to him on that. But... (laughs) Valentine was not losing to Morocco. God, all I think, all I can think about now is Greg Valentine smoking weed, and also in that shoot interview where he was like, "I'm not doing jobs for anybody." Like, those are the only two things now that I can remember. Like, I've completely forgotten everything else about Greg Valentine. But the matches with these guys—I mean, Morocco was not all that great in ring at this point, and there wasn't—it just didn't seem like a, a real chemistry. There as a vertical suplex by Valentine, who then pulls the man up at two because he's not putting guys away with that ver- with that vertical suplex where he kind of you know tosses the guy with arm, one arm. So all right, we've established now the the Valentine Morocco dynamic. Maybe not the greatest thing in the world. So let's go right back to Vince and Jesse as Vinnie Mac decides to put Jesse on trial here. Let's get back to your officiating, Jesse. Earlier on, you made a, a guarantee that there was going to be a positive victor, and I'm not too sure that that's the guarantee that fans would really like to hear from you. I think more than anything else, the guarantee the fans would like to hear from you is whether or not you're going to be totally unbiased, whether or not you're, you're going to call this match from a very fair standpoint. That's, I think, what fans would like for you to guarantee them. And you want me to make a statement right now on that? You think about it. All right, I'll think about it for a while. But by the same token, McMahon, getting back to what I talked about, you know, everybody thinks Jesse the body can be bought by the million-dollar man's money. I know that's crossed your mind, hasn't it? Jesse, not only has it crossed my mind. I have pride, McMahon. Money can't mean everything to a star like me in Hollywood. Well, I can tell you that before you became a big Hollywood star, Mr. Ventura, I believe I can quote you almost chapter and verse of stating that, yes, you would have a price for the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Did you make such a statement at not? Yes, I did, but that was before. Now it's after. You know, I'm like a politician, McMahon. You go with the flow. Oh. Well, no you know, we're in the middle of a big political season right now. Someday you might even see President Ventura. This is just so amazing because when Vince goes at Jesse, I always feel like there's a little bit of subtext of, of what's going on in terms of Jesse maybe being a little bit difficult or whatever. But the reason why Jesse is the referee for this match is because of the whole Hebner thing earlier in the year, which they 
for whatever reason, decided to ignore at WrestleMania 4. You know, let's just have Hebner main event, the, you know, referee the main event with DiBiase and Savage. As if everybody was going to forget eight weeks later that, oh yeah, this guy was part of the big storyline like not, not long before this. Fine. So you have Jesse as the SummerSlam ref. And it provides what I like to call as organic hype because they can literally do it in every freaking match because Jesse's on commentary. You got a lot of guys that maybe people don't care about so much. So in the course of a three-minute squash match, you can spend half of that time talking about the guy in question, but you can spend the other half grilling Jesse about what his intentions might be. Like a politician? Oh, God. (laughs) Great stuff. Although... Please, Jesse, do do not do not run for president. God knows we've already had one too many presidents who <laughs> were at WrestleMania four and five and seven and the other one that I don't have never watched. Yeah, I've never actually watched WrestleMania twenty three. I, I I really don't care to either. Yeah, I know Batista and the Undertaker was a good match. I don't give a crap. I, I really don't. By the way, just a quick aside: if you are going to give me a one star review, if you if you're going to do it because I hate a certain person, good. Please continue doing that because it is a sim. It is a signal to everybody out there. Oh yeah, this guy is not completely insane. He's not a complete a hole to everybody around him. Exception being when somebody is on I ninety three and moves over from right to left in the lanes and is going ten miles an hour slower than me, and they kind of cut me off. Then I become very angry, and then I become an a hole towards that person because they're violating the sacred Massachusetts oath of do not get in my way when I'm just trying to get where the hell I'm going. So we get the quick and very noticeable submission by (laughs) the unknown guy who did his job well here. He gave up, like, immediately because the whole bit of the shin guard is to give the figure four a little bit more oomph. Oh, he turns it around, and somehow it makes the figure four more effective. I mean, look, I, I'm not very good at, at biology, physiology, whatever the hell the thing is. The, 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 oh, this body part's going to hurt from the figure four? Fine. I will. I was willing to accept that premise then, and I'm willing to accept that premise now, that a soccer shin guard will just uh, make the figure four that much more devastating. Hello, everyone. I'm John Mooney here at the WWF Event Center. And, oh, what a night it is going to be, August 6th, starting at 8.30 p.m. at the Boston Garden. Sean Mooney is still a little bit new, and he hasn't quite modulated his voice yet. And that's fine, because I think about his first months with the company, and I want to know what his reaction was, and I'm sure he probably went into this on his podcast uh, a long time ago, like three years ago, or whenever that was, when, yeah, Sean, we need you to be the play-by-play announcer for WrestleFest 88, because I am pretty sure that he had never done anything of that sort before. In fact, I do remember he said that Lord Alfred Hayes was instrumental in, in you know getting him through that. Sean Mooney also was a producer, or he worked at least, on the Baseball Bunch earlier in the 80s, which was one of my favorite shows in my childhood. So we're hyping the upcoming Boston Garden show on August 6th, which I gotta tell you, no interest in attending a show there on August. 88 was a very hot summer, at least in Massachusetts, and the Boston Garden was falling apart. You had a blackout during the Stanley Cup final that year. Like, I don't think I would want to spend time in August in that in that building. <laughs> like, it, it just feels like you would be uncomfortable the entire time. So we got Savage versus Ted DiBiase in a rematch there. 
Brutus Beefcake against Honky Tonk Man for the Intercontinental title, but they're doing the George Steele is going to be at ringside, or Georgina, to counter Peggy Sue. So that we're at that stage of the feud, r- rapidly nearing the end. This is also the era when they're doing the event center promos. They're not in front of their brave corporate logo with the green screen. No, instead you have that map of the world that you would see at WrestleMania 4, although it does look slightly different. And we're going to hear from the Honky Talk Man, who had held the title for so long. It was between when this Superstars was taped on July 13th and when it aired on July 30th. It's, I'm not going to run the calculations here, but it was some point between those dates where he passed Randy Savage for the longest continuous single reign of an Intercontinental Champion. But he's so washed at this point, as evidenced by this promo, I think. You know, Beat Cake says this girlfriend's going to be at ringside. She's ugly, she's got hair. And she goes, oh, yeah. It's George Steele. George Steele. Here's the thing. He's invited Peggy Sue back to ringside with a honky-tonk man. And he's got somebody, he says, his girlfriend standing back lurking in the shadows that we can hear. We can hear it coming over the TV screen. It's going, you. It's got animalistic tendencies. Hair. It's got hair all over it. And you want me to bring Peggy Sue back, Brutus? You want me to bring her back after what you did to her the last time? Oh, you deserve the rematch. I'm, I'm, I'll be glad to give you the rematch. But this thing about having somebody over there like what you have, uh-uh, I'm not going for this. Peggy Sue's not going to be around for anything like this either. She don't like it. Mercifully, George Steele is winding down his in-ring career. I mean, he'd been wrestling since the 60s, so it, w- it was past due at this point. But now, hockey is just, he, he's now devolved into just arguing on technicalities, which, all right, fine. I know he's a chicken shit heel and everything, but, uh, and I'm not suggesting that maybe he should have lost to Beefcake at WrestleMania 4. All, all, all I know is it, it, it just was not the same at this point. Now, to me, in the moment, the time, that wasn't the case, because I was just like everybody else. I, I, I just wanted to see him die, and I wanted to see him lose. But the heat was not what it was in 1987. It, it, it did go on a little bit too long, although the payoff was certainly good, as I'll mention a little bit later. By virtue of turning heel earlier in July, the fabulous Rougeau brothers have become fabulous. They were just the Rougeau brothers before, and they wore trunks instead of those half-short things that they would wear as heels. And they're taking on the Hart Foundation who, of course, are going to be challenging Demolition at SummerSlam 88, and they have a promo in that segment a little bit later. So if you like hearing the whole dynamic of the Anvil and the Hitman and the way that they would do this, well, this is the show for you because there's two of them. You know, Hitman, the Rougeaus are awfully obnoxious. You know, they're saying, what's what's with the Heart Foundation and all the pink? They're calling us a bunch of sissies. Hey, you see this? You see that right there? That's a heart. Something you know nothing about. Let me tell you something, Jacques and Ramon. I didn't like you a long time ago, and I certainly don't like you now. And I'm looking forward to facing the fabulous Russo brothers. <laughs> Alive and kicking the heart foundation. These two teams are such natural opponents for each other. The obvious connection that you want to make in retrospect is Bret Hart and Jacques Rougeau. Because they'd have a singles feud, 91 into 92, with Mountie and... Bret Hart as the IC champ, losing it to him two days before the Royal Rumble and all that. But the other thing, with these two teams, they were never on the same side. Like, 
The Rougeaus turned heel in the summer of 1988. The Hart Foundation, well, they kind of gradually turned face. Bret Hart, basically, as by virtue of bad news, turning on him at WrestleMania 4. Maybe not the strongest way to turn face, getting beat up, but, you know, it, it worked well enough. Anvil, who is still a heel in his face, you know, he's going up against faces on house shows like Lanny Poffo and the rest eventually comes around to hey let's dump jimmy hart so what happens is jimmy hart eventually ends up with the rougeos that doesn't really happen until more towards the fall it'd definitely be after SummerSlam. but yeah these guys were never on the same side of the face heel structure the rougeos come in as faces in 86 and our the hart foundation are on the other side so they could be opponents then both teams turn in 88 and they could still have matches with these guys going forward. Orange Crush presents Ravishing Rick Rude, 250 pounds from Robinsdale, Minnesota, as he drops Larry Stevens to the canvas with his devastating Rude away to any athlete of the United States of America, where there are a lot of reasons why I am superior to any athletes of this country. But the main reason is you are looking at the world's strongest man. Odd piece of this video is you get an Orange Crush sponsored segment for Ravishing Rick Rude that gets cut off and immediately goes in halfway through a Dino Bravo promo, which I'm not going to complain about because I only had to watch half of it. But he's still playing up that strongest man in the world bit from the Royal Rumble, which good thing I saw that as my first thing as a fan. God, why the hell did I stick around? So. On to the next match. Brutus the Barber Beefcake, the aforementioned one, taking on Tim Dixon, who is there as part of Beefcake's mullet control program of the late 80s, which I have to term a success overall. But Beefcake, the whole thing is winding down with the Honky Tonk Man. The, the whole premise of the SummerSlam match and the way it's being billed, as we'll see later, is this is his last chance. And whenever they do that, it's ob- obviously assumed, oh yeah, Beefcake's going to win the title in this one. And fine but we all know what happened there so this allows jesse and vince to maybe talk about some other stuff but jesse here is just dripping with sarcasm you know mcmahon can you imagine what feeling i have right now this huge tremendous bout coming up hulk hogan macho man savage against andre dibiase and i hold the key to the whole thing right in the palm of my hand there you can see a gentleman getting a little closer look at the action and that's exactly the way you could perhaps be officiating this matchup with the wwf binoculars then you really get a good bird tie too yeah i might have to carry a pair of them into the ring they're real stylish I say dripping with sarcasm because those binoculars are literally one of the ugliest things I've ever seen in the history of Western civilization. They're, they're, they're not good. And I apologize to anybody out there who has that as a collectible on hand. So we get a high knee by Beefcake, a chilling vision of things to come with the booty man. But also, that was his singles finisher when he before he was a barber. So yeah, Beefcake, whatever. He, he, is, he is what he is. <laughs> Fine. Fine. We, we, we know what this is. This is a chance for Vince and Jesse to once again continue their bickering like an old married couple. I love it, though, big man. Hulk Hogan calling me sir. That's going to be great. 
Jesse, there is so much concern as to exactly the way you're going to officiate this match. I mean, there need not be concern, McMahon. You seem to be the only person concerned, and you know what I think the problem is? What? I think you're jealous that Tunney didn't name you the referee. There's no way I'd get in there. Not with those monsters. Not with the, the feelings that DiBiase has for Savage and vice versa. And therefore, shouldn't you be patting me on the back for having the guts to get in there and be part of the final outcome? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, well, then get off of my back for a change. Some credit is due. Although, Jesse, you know, you always do things for Jesse. I mean, there's something up your sleeve, and I don't know what it is. And, well, I know what's up. Beefcake sleeve. Yes, look at this. Part of what makes this so great is the easiest hype job you could ever do. Because, oh, Jesse, blah, blah, blah. It's part of the normal bickering with these guys. And maybe having Jesse as the ref at SummerSlam 88 and them being able to do this actually enhanced Vince and Jesse as an announcer team. Because remember, Bruno's there until March. So the dynamic is slightly different. Jesse would try to get Bruno involved sometimes. It would make jokes and sometimes Bruno would laugh. But when it's just Vince and Jesse, yeah, there's, I guess, maybe a mild adjustment period. Yeah, they were on Saturday night's main event together. But the weekly TV is slightly different than what you get on NBC. So you get two years of this, and 89 is when the bickering is just at its height because you get no holds barred and Jesse's all pissed off all the time. But here, I, I think a lot of it started with the Jesse as ref because it allowed them to have this back and forth. Sleeper finishes for Beefcake. And and by the way, he's got music now. Brutus the Barber, man. I don't know when the music debuted. And I, I've said before, I would like to have a database so that we can find out when did Tito Santana finally get music? When did that debut? The, these are the things that I need to know. But I, even if I committed it to memory, I, I probably would forget it. Like how I always forget which taping the Hercules being sold to Ted DiBiase thing was on. For some reason, I always think it was taped before SummerSlam when it was not the case, just because of the way Herc's match at SummerSlam went down. But anyway, that, that is incredibly off-topic. Playing one of those Golden Girls bumpers leading into a Bad News Brown match feels a little weird, but it's the way we're going to do things here. As bad news is taking on Frankie DeFalco, who's got a name that sounds like one of the background guys in, like, a mafia, either TV show. So, like, he's the 12th male lead in The Sopranos or whatever. Frankie DeFalco. So right away, bad news attacks. Doesn't even wait for Finkel to finish the introductions. And they're talking, Vince and Jesse, obviously, when they're not bickering, about bad news in his undefeated streak, which later in the year he's going to play up as... I deserve title matches because I haven't lost anybody. But has bad news actually lost to somebody? We all know that if they lose on house shows, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count because it didn't happen on TV. But did he actually lose? Well, yeah, he'd obviously lose by disqualification. But what struck me is that his first pinfall loss, and I'm assuming that it's pinfall because it said Coco Beware defeated Bad News Brown. This was in Baltimore on the 26th of February. So this is before he won the Battle Royal at WrestleMania 4. Then, in a match that sounds completely made up because of the people involved, 
Bad News Brown defeated Tony Gurria on on February 29th, which, again, you only see that day every four years, and you never see Bad News Brown versus Tony Gurria. Tony Gurria wrestling in the year 1988. It, it almost feels like that result can't be correct, but I'm sure they probably just threw him out there for one shot. What does it take? That's right, I said, what does it take for you beer belly sharecroppers to realize one thing, that Bad News Brown is undefeated in the WWF, and Bad News Brown will stay undefeated in the WWF, because I will squash those cockroaches. Man, did you hear that? He called you a beer belly sharecropper. That's a good name for you. I take a back seat to nobody in my love of Bad News Brown's character work during this run, especially early on in 88 when he's really getting established. He kind of floundered for a bit in 89, and then 1990 was just kind of a, a series of feuds that didn't really connect unless, of course, Bad News was going on the Arsenio Hall show to talk about Jake Roberts, in which case that is freaking hilarious. I covered that back in November of 2019, I think it was. But one of the lines they would always use is beer-bellied sharecroppers, which always makes me think, does sharecropping still actually exist? Like, are there sharecroppers? Yes, there are, but it's called something different because it's kind of a loaded term, sharecropper, because it makes you think of a specific thing. So I, th- I think that's why it you know changed over the years. Or maybe bad news got it changed, and he wanted sharecroppers to be his own word, because you never really heard it after bad news brown. Maybe, maybe that's his word now. I don't know. But even though bad news is certainly a very well-pushed commodity, that is not going to stop Vince and Jesse from bickering over the SummerSlam main event. Well, he's an arrogant sort of a individual, isn't he? That he is, but he's got a right to be arrogant. His record backs him up. If you win, you can be arrogant, McMahon. Yes. And I wonder what sort of a referee, an arrogant referee is going to make. Because that's what you are. (laughs) Well, let me tell you this, McMahon. Why then did Jack Tunney have the confidence to put a match of this magnitude into the palm of my hand? I have no idea. I have thought about that. And you know what the worst thing is about it? What? He's got some secretary named uh, Emily Hotbody or something that's been bothering me day in and day out. Calling me up and bothering me to no end. What does that You know anything about her? (laughs) Listen, I question Mr. Tunney's judgment publicly. Oh, look at this. Oh, my, right behind the back of the head to Falco. This one's over. Down like a ton of bricks. <laughs> and over. Bad News Brown, his hand raised high, and he is bad news for his opponent. And, oh, look at this. Come on. That is so great. As Vince goes stone cold silent, no pun intended, when Emily Hotbody is brought up because Vince's secretary at the time was this woman named Emily Feinberg, which we learned in the Zahorian trial and all the other stuff later on, you know, through ordering steroids and that sort of stuff. Jesse just throwing that in there. And yes, Vince probably banged her at a certain point. I mean, that seems obvious. Vince would cheat on Linda regularly and would admit to it, I guess, when confronted about it, because that's who Vince McMahon is, apparently. (laughs) The fact that Jesse brings up Emily Hotbody, and Vince doesn't know what to say for a second there, and then quickly changes the subject, that is Jesse's sunny days moment right there. She heard bad news hit the ghetto blaster, 
and picked up the easy victory here. Very quick. And they, they like played him out with like the music very quickly. We heard from the Mega Powers earlier on. I'm told in just a moment we're going to hear from the Mega Bucks. But before we go to them, we get Sean Mooney in what I'm going to term a SummerSlam event center. Once again, talking a little too loud. Now, for the history of DiBiase and Andre, it might be a lot less interesting than Hogan and Savage, you know, less ingrained in the popular culture of wrestling and all that, but they were formed in the summer of 1979, or DiBiase teamed with Andre for some Atlantic City Steel Pair shows, which were on YouTube at one time. I, I don't think they're still there. I did them for a very early GFA Live with Keithy at some point last summer. So yes, the Megabucks, DiBiase and Andre, while they might have been faces back in 79, they were formed where all great heels originate, the Jersey Shore. SummerSlam 1988. It's going to be a hot night in August in the Big Apple, Andre. That's right. And you know, Savage, you never cease to amaze me. You have the whole world holding their breath, anxiously anticipating the big news. Who's your partner going to be? Hulk Hogan and expecting us to stand here and shake in our boots? Do we look like we're scared? Do you expect me to be afraid because Hogan's coming back? He's crawling out from underneath that rock he's been hiding under and licking his wounds ever since the last time Andre beat him. What's the matter with you, Hogan? How many times do you have to go to the well before you realize you can't beat this man? I'm scared. I got the biggest insurance policy in the world. They're calling this the mega bucks versus the mega powers. Well, let me tell you something, guys. We got that in one team. There's nothing more powerful. Tell them, Andre. X chat. <laughs> Welcome back, X chat. You know, I got you. I the Survivor Series, WrestleMania 2, WrestleMania 3. And now, the prime time I put you down to, and you, you just tip it in there. I still get some money coming, X-Champ. Oh, guys, one more thing. <laughs> Jesse the Body Ventura is the referee. Yeah! I don't know if Andre was actually drunk for that promo, because I, I missed Andre and Hogan at WrestleMania 2. He said WrestleMania 2 and WrestleMania 3. I'm assuming he meant three and four. <laughs> Apparently, there's some sort of exchange rates in WrestleManias. Or maybe Andre just doesn't acknowledge WrestleMania 2. I mean, he did look pretty out of it, even though he was winning that battle royal. He just kind of stormed off afterwards instead of accepting the trophy or award or whatever it was. But I'm glad that they gave him a lot of time. But again, they are plugging this main event like nobody's business. See SummerSlam 88, Monday night, August 29th at 8 p.m. on a pay-per-view basis on these great systems. In Andover, Heritage Cablevision. In Arlington, Brockton, Cambridge, Dedham, Natick, North Situate, and Quincy, Continental Cablevision. In Foxborough, Massachusetts Cablevision. In Falmouth and Marshfield, Adelphia Cable. In Lynn, Warner Cable. In Rockland, Campbell Cable TV. And in Weymouth, Dimension Cable Services. A lot more diversity in cable systems back then in, in terms of the names. Now it's just Xfinity or or AT&T, or whatever your local provider is. Where I live, we have no other choice than Comcast. You you call yourself Xfinity, and we all know that you're Comcast, all right? You're, you're trying to hide behind a new gimmick, and it's not working. 
But in any event, I remember around this time that Gorilla seemed to be particularly concerned about Dish and D-Scrambler owners. They would always mention it on Primetime Restless. Like, it was supposed to call Primetime 24 or something like that. I don't know why I'm doing that voice for Gorilla, but anyway, maybe I'm just tired. Let me tell you something, the long, hot days of summer hitting all this drought, hitting this great country yard, what you need to do is grab one of these superstars of wrestling ice cream bars and take you a big old West Texas bite out of it just like this. Mm. Better start eating, kid. I don't understand the appeal of Sam Houston. Yeah, is he supposed to be this undersized underdog? Yes, but what does he do well? I don't quite understand what, well, like, oh, he really could have been something. Like, no, he couldn't have because his his legs are so skinny. I mean, I don't want to, like, body shame the guy, but frankly, he did need to eat a few more ice cream bars, which is why he better start eating, kid. Also, probably should drink less since he had a million DUIs, according to his then-wife, Baby Doll, who I mentioned it in some interview recently. Anyway, speaking of <laughs> speaking of drinking and doing drugs, we got the Rockers up next against Pete Sanchez and Rick Gantner. Who, the Rockers look like Hogan compared with freaking Sam Houston, both Marty and Sean. As Jesse says that the Rockers are too small to dethrone demolition, which... They said that about the about strike force as well that they were too small to defend against them. So you're just going to keep hammering away at that. Didn't say that about the bulldogs though, probably because you don't want to get mercilessly ribbed by that asshole dynamite kid. So they actually do the comparison, Vince and Jesse, with strike force, which is kind of funny because when they do the injury angle with Martell. It's taped on June 1st, and they reveal it on TV the beginning of July. So effectively, the Rockers took that spot as the good-looking dude uh, tag team. As Tito's now back on to singles. They refer to them as tag team specialists, which honestly, it's a, it's a great phrase and all, but it really pigeonholes both guys. So it is kind of remarkable that they ever did anything as a singles wrestler, whether it be Sean or Marty. I, I believe they both won the Intercontinental title. I, I don't know if Sean ever went on and did anything, you know, like ruin NXT. Anyway, Marty hops the ropes off an Irish whip and stands on the apron awkwardly, waiting for, I think that's Sanchez, to charge. It kind of strange looking, looked very weird. And... Nothing as weird, though, as this next exchange with Jesse Advance. Kind of like in football being a kicking specialist. Yeah, I'd say something like that. That means you're not really a football player, but you're part of the team. No, I don't think that's what that means at all. I mean, you were a specialist, remember, when uh, you were in the Navy, right? Or were you just uh, another swabby? No, I was not another swabby. Right? Well, then you were a specialist, were you not? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Rest my case. I'm just happy you're a lawyer. Rest my case. Oh, please. I'm not too happy about you being the guest referee. Quit bringing it up, McMahon. You yourself have never questioned Jack Tunney's integrity. Now, all of a sudden, you become... No, his... no, no. I, I still don't question his integrity. I question his good judgment in this view. Look at that. The cover, and that's it. It's all over. 
Vince is like the bald Sicilian in The Princess Bride, where, where when he becomes uncomfortable with the conversation, or in the bald Sicilian's case, the Battle of Wits, what in the world is that? Like, just, just quickly changing the topic to as a means of distraction. But yeah, there was a match going on here, as there were some double-team moves by these tag-team specialists, and it was a forearms off the top rope where the Rockers pick up the one, two, three. But... Wow, I don't think I've ever had a superstars as just as heavy on the Vince and Jesse back and forth as this one. I was not expect I was expecting a little bit of it coming in. That was my expectation. I was not expecting it in every freaking match. From the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine, here's update. All right, Tito Canonier, you heard the profound announcement from the undisputed World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champ. Earlier on, Macho Man Randy Savage declaring that indeed Hulk Hogan would be his tag team partner in SummerSlam 88. Look at the update segment getting bumped down the lineup like it's Alex Rodriguez in the 2006 ALCS, or excuse me, ALDS, because the Yankees didn't get past the first round that year. But this is all a consequence of Savage's announcement early in the show that sets up everything else. See, a stupid wrestling promotion would have put Savage on last and then still just aired the other stuff beforehand. Mean Gene very helpfully lets us know, or lets anybody know who hasn't been in a coma for the last hour, that Jesse Ventura will be the special referee. And the picture of Jesse is hilarious because he's wearing a hat with like a white front to it. It just looks really goofy and dad-like. It also kind of looks like the Baltimore Orioles home hats, which by the way, I don't really care. I've never actually bought that hat, the one with the Oriole bird in the white front. I don't know. I feel like I feel like somehow I'm going to spill something on it even though it's a hat and it's on the top of my head. A hat? It's not really important right now. We got Mean Gene. He's going to run down the card for the inaugural SummerSlam. Yes, we're, we're, fi- we're going to establish everything in place. It's July 30th. The show is 30 days away, and we already have the entire card laid out from top to bottom. Let's start with the Tag Team Champions Demolition, who are taking on the Hart Foundation, which is a solid match that I think get, really gets forgotten because the SummerSlam 90 match is much more memorable because of the title change. Two out of three falls. It lasted a little bit longer. But Brett was so great in the SummerSlam 88 match. I just think that it gets overshadowed by what happened later when you look back on it from the perspective of now. I can slam and I can smash. It's right, it's right, it's right, it's right. Easy, Jim. In SummerSlam 88, we're going to find out who is the best. We want our belts back. If somebody asked the question, what were the Heart Foundation promos like? You can really sum it up in that 13 seconds or whatever it was where Anvil gets himself... All worked up and animated. He basically wants to storm the United States Capitol and undermine democracy forever. But Brett's like, nah, that's not a good idea. Take it easy, Jim. And then, like, we want our belts back. So, nice, summed up. Doesn't take too long because, you know, we're we're short on time. Brett is on the cover of the WWF magazine in the, in the month that had come out, which I thought think is interesting considering that he's, I guess, again, one half of a tag team. But... Remember, this one's during singles push number one or two, depending on the accounting methodology that you are using. Now, Brutus the Barber Beefcake is going to get his last chance against the Honky Tonk Man. 
The whole thing just seems really weird in retrospect because they were trying to build that up and then pivoted to Warrior. Now, I don't remember what Bruce Pritchard said on his podcast. In effect, I wouldn't believe anything that he said on this topic because I, sometimes I think he just lies for, for the hell of it. I don't think he does it maliciously. I, I think he just kind of makes stuff up from his perspective or his memory or whatever. But it was the correct move to go to Warrior because that was... I, Beefcake as an IC champion was not going to work. It's just that they happened to luck out two out of three summers. Although he did main event the other SummerSlam that he was in. Other matches, Powers of Pain and the Bolsheviks, which we're going to get into a little bit more when the Powers of Pain have their match. The only thing notable about that is Baron Von Raschke debuts under a hood as the Baron and doesn't say anything for two months and disappears quietly shortly thereafter. Jake the Snake Roberts against Hercules, which I mentioned the weirdness of Hercules, and that's why I thought that the angle with DiBiase might have been taped before SummerSlam. Well... It's weird because Heenan was not at ringside with Hercules for that match, which is, and Gorilla pointed out right away, part of that being because the main event was following that Jake versus Hercules match on the card. Ravishing Rick Rude against the Junkyard Dog because Junkyard Dog versus Hercules and Rude versus Jake is not, a, that that just isn't going to work. JYD versus Circulies in 1988 is literally the, maybe the most pointless endeavor in all of human history. But we're going to hear from Rude, who it is interesting to hear promos for. He's facing this guy, but his real issue is with another guy. At the SummerSlam, Ravishing Rick Rude's going to be double Rude. First, I bury the junkyard dog with Rude Awakening number one. And then a lucky young lady gets a quick trick to heaven. With Rude Awakening number two. Maybe what it is, is for this first SummerSlam, they were all instructed to call it the SummerSlam, and Brett just never got off that when everybody else corrected course. I think that might have something to do with it, although maybe it's a Canada thing, again, because, well, Rude's from Minnesota, but that that's close enough to Canada. And now we got the matches on the show that nobody really cared about. Morocco versus Bravo, because everybody wanted to see that WrestleMania 4 round one classic get run back again. Ken Patera versus Bad News, where Gorilla... It, I, I don't think it's that match where Gorilla is openly calling for Patera to retire. That That's probably more towards the fall. Big Boss Man against Coco Beware. We're going to see Boss Man coming up next. The dropkick spot in that match is incredible for the guy who loses in like four minutes but brings the crowd to his feet in that one moment. Coco off the top rope. British Bulldogs against the Fabulous Rougeos, which is the opener. A 20-minute draw, and not one that I found particularly boring, but not one that I found particularly great either. Plus, Brother Love is going to have a special guest for his first live appearance Brother Love, we love you. <laughs> Brother Love with a special guest. That guy thinks he's going to rifle my poke for a C-note. He's got to be out of his mind. It is left vague who the guest on the Brother Love show is going to be. They don't give any sort of description at this point. Now, it would end up being Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which, fine, whatever. It was a time-killer sort of segment. Rumor was always that Ric Flair would make the jump, and that is how he would debut. And that would be interesting because... 
I don't think anybody had debuted on a pay-per-view super show in the WWF, so that would be something entirely new unless I'm forgetting somebody obvious. But, yeah, Ric Flair was not ready to leave yet for whatever reason, although we would have been left without his 1989, but frankly, he should have left in 1990. Uh, that That's just my take on that. And, of course, Mega Powers versus Mega Bucks. Great branding on that. You get the Mega on both sides. Mega Bucks is a thing that people knew, at least in some states, including Massachusetts, because they had a Mega Bucks drawing, which was a big deal in the 80s, because... We didn't have Powerball in Massachusetts. We had, you know, Mega Million. Mega Millions came later, but Mega Bucks, which I don't even know if they're like the same thing. But I'm kind of surprised that they didn't come after the WWF for using the name Mega Bucks. Although maybe they thought of it in terms of this doesn't really harm our copyright here. They're not selling merch with it. And it's just putting that word into people's minds, so maybe it makes them more likely to buy a Mega Bucks ticket by having Andre and DiBiase teaming up. Anyway, the Mega Bucks lottery started in 1982, and the gimmick was that there would be no jackpot lower than $400,000, which I know seems like small potatoes now, but in the bad economy of 1982, that was a big freaking deal. So why don't we go right to the big boss man who I said was up next, taking on... Chris Goodman, as Jesse thankfully has gotten past the era in his career where he kept calling Coco Beware, the opponent for the big boss man at SummerSlam, he kept calling him Buckwheat, and now he just said, he looks like a criminal, which I'm not touching that statement, but it's probably not the greatest thing that Jesse could have said. So Vince and Jesse, they, they bicker over that for a little bit. By the way, Boss Man, as I mentioned, debuted on that June 18th, 88, Superstars. He's got a back elbow because he knows what I like. And we get an inset promo, and all I can think is, oh, my God, what a freaking blunder by Jim Crockett Promotions letting this guy go. You know, Big Boss Man, when you go against Coco Beware in the SummerSlam, it'll be a different encounter because you've been used to jailbirds, but this time it'll be a blackbird. He's going to find out that I'm just an instrument of justice, and justice has no mercy. Well, I suppose only Slick could get away with saying that. If the Boss Man had said blackbird, that it is a completely different scenario. Scenario. Boss Man Slam finishes, and I have to say, Goodman did not really go up for the ride. Certainly not Louis Spicoli level on that one, but he then gets cuffed and beaten for his trouble. I mean, Spicoli did too, so really, I, I, I think he just said, I'm going to take the bump, but I'm not going to fly through the air like Louis Spicoli. You love it when Beefcake dishes out a haircut. How come you don't like it when the big Boss Man dishes out a little justice? Because, firstly, this is not justice. The match is officially over, Jesse. So is it when Beefcake cuts... Come on. So is it when Beefcake cuts people's hair. This has just got to stop. Absolutely has to stop. Someone has to do something about this. He's just trying to get a confession out of the guy. That's all. Look at him. For a conspiracy theorist, Jesse always has airtight logic when he makes arguments like, Vince, why do you kill the boss man for this? And Beefcake does a similar thing. Because he's got he's got no answer for that, Vince. It's just completely inarguable. And I just love the fact that he actually goes there. Because a lot of announcers would be like, you know what? I'm not going to 
I'm not going to say something like that and kind of put my partner in a comfortable spot. He's doing this to the owner of the freaking company. And that is why I love Jesse so much. So we're now to our last match here. So I might as well just go right to it. Hey, it's the Powers of Pain featuring the Warlord taking on Rick Renslow and Dave Wagner, also known as the Alaskans in the AWA. But I'll get to that in a second. Is Renslow... I wanted to learn a little bit more about him. He passed away in 2008 at the age of 53. And it was, it was stomach cancer that got him. And that that's a kind of cancer that can kind of progress. And I guess you don't really know about it. And that's exactly what happened to him. He's from Minneapolis. I think he was an Eddie Sharkey guy. But what's interesting is his obituary said that he wrestled for the World Wrestling Federation. True. he Him and... Ren, Renslow and Wagner actually teamed quite a bit on WWF TV, but it said the other place they wrestled was the AWF, <laughs> which he's from Minneapolis. They did wrestle in the AWA in 86 and 87 as the Alaskans. It's just so funny. Like, <laughs> spit in Vern's eye just one last time. Say AWF instead of the AWA. Now, earlier I had mentioned the Powers of Pain winning the non-title match against Demolition, which they did a couple of times. But really, their story is they're going to face the Bolsheviks as the gatekeeper tag team on the heel side, which which is a good matchup from the perspective of you want them to go over a fairly big team. Nikolai is is pretty big. I don't think Boris Zukai. I mean, his head is big, so it kind of makes him look bigger than he actually is. But guys like these, I think, whether you're the largest wrestling promotion in the world or you're the smallest independent promotion, I think it's helpful to have a kind of larger-than-average size tag team that you can use to go against bigger tag teams that you might be pushing more. It's a valuable commodity. Now, with the Bolsheviks, though, I'm not sure that they're going to be able to state their case as succinctly and as eloquently as maybe some other teams. I didn't hear him clearly either. I thought he said, if you're not Russian, you're not straight. Which I'm like, what an odd remark that is. I, I, the Soviets did not have a monopoly on heterosexual sex as I know it during the Cold War. But now, once again, we get, and I swear, this is the final time we're going to get more bickering between Vince and Jesse. We're just getting the barbarian dominating for a little bit and Warlord shoulder blocks. You're not missing anything. Sometimes I think I can understand Nikolai speaking Russian a little better than I can Boris speaking English. Well, you know, it's tough being like that, McMahon. I mean, they're foreigners in a foreign country, and they're going to be a little sloppy with the language. I mean, imagine what you'd sound like going over to Russia trying to speak Russian. That'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? Well, I don't know. It's, you know, you're not a foreigner, Jesse, and, and look at, listen to your English. Hey, I talk street English, what people out there understand. I don't talk this Harvard jargon that you do. You're more into the Hollywood sort of way. Yeah, if I want to be, if you want to be. That's, here we go again. If you want to be a fair referee, if you want to favor Ted DiBiase and take some of his money, 
If you want to... I don't need his money, McMahon. You don't need his money. I don't need his money. I got a residual check for video market off predators. You should have seen that one. I'd like to add water your mouth, I'm sure. And that, out of all the audio of Vince and Jesse that I've played on this show, that might be my favorite. That might even top Emily Hotbody because Jesse is directly referencing residuals from the Predator videotape. The exact thing that he would sue Vince McMahon over years later because he screwed him out of residuals on Coliseum Video from being a commentator. It's just crazy. This has been a wacky show where I've been devoted so much freaking time to commentary and almost none to the actual wrestling. There's no offense for the Alaskans in this match. Power slam and headbutt combo finishes. Barbarian goes three quarters of the way across the ring. That's why the move looks impressive. And Jesse points out the agility of the powers of pain by which he really only means the Barbarian. What is this, Bulldog? Is this a joke that you want a championship match? But first, you prove yourself to the demolition of Master Fuji. Yeah, you stinking goose! Why don't you turn around and ask that little manager of yours? That mangy mutt! Maybe she'll help you! Are you getting sick and tired of waiting in line? It's gonna be a long time, Bulldogs! You're nothing! You're nobody! And after this match, you're still gonna be nothing and nobody! We're gonna take you all the way down! We're back to the event center for the Boston Garden Show on August the 6th, where the British Bulldogs are gonna challenge Demolition, as you might have imagined, listening to Demolition and Fuji. Darso's makeup as Smash, you think, oh, you're a year and a half in, you finally figured it out. There's something weird about it. There's a big black spot down the middle of it. Not entirely, He never had that design that I can recall ever again. But the tag belts of that era that debuted a few years before that and then lasted for a very long time, and people lament that those tag team belts have never been brought back. I, I am in that group, but... That tag belt will never look better than it did on Axe from Demolition. He he wore that belt. I, I think it looked the most natural on him out of anybody who ever had it. And, of course, the main event of that Boston Garden show, which drew 8,000 because of the aforementioned lack of air conditioning during a super hot summer. The Macho Man Randy Savage, like I said, at his apex, at his peak. Although, some of his... Comments here are a little strange again. He he comes right at Virgil. Yeah, and you ugly bodyguard Virgil. Yeah, you're all a part of it. Yeah, but the worst person. Yeah, is where the money lies. Yeah. It's you, DiBiase. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, you've set me up before, but you've set me up for the last time. Yeah, right, Elizabeth. I'm sincere right now. I'm going to get you, yeah, you and your dirty money. I've tasted it for the last time. And I'm talking to Andre the Giant and Bobby Heenan. You sold your soul. You've done it before. But you've done it for the last time this time. Virgil, you and DiBiase, I'm going to get you all at one time. I'm going to smash you and beat you, yeah. Virgil, I'm going to get you, yeah. I've already explained that I love the Randy Savage of this era, but i got to take issue with him coming after Virgil. You should be focused on DiBiase. And he did bring up Andre quite a bit, considering that he wasn't even going to be there. Virgil's not ugly, but Virgil's not good-looking. He, he's just that. He, he, it's... He's just he's just Virgil. That's that's all that he is. He he is no other adjective than just Virgil. 
So I would be remiss if I did not read the results of this show because, God forbid, they put the Boston Garden House shows back on the WWE Network. Ron Bass pinned Coco Beware. The Rougeau brothers defeated the Hart Foundation at 12.01 when Raymond pinned Brett, coming off the top with a double axe handle behind the referee's back as Brett had his sleeper applied on Jock. That's all, that always looks like kind of a weak finish when the guy gets pinned on something like that. DJ Peterson pinned Lanny Poffo at 5.52. The honky-tonk man with Peggy Sue, who was Jimmy Hart and drag, pinned Brutus Beefcake with Georgia, George Steele and drag, at 6.02 after hitting the challenger with Hart's megaphone. That was on Best of the WWF Volume 17, which I covered on GFA Live along with Keithy a long time ago. Demolition successfully defended their tag team titles against the British Bulldogs in 9.01 in a non-title match. What the hell does that mean? I guess maybe that explains the interview there where they're like, you don't deserve a title shot or whatever. Bad News Brown over Scott Casey. And in the main event, the Macho Man Randy Savage defeated Ted DiBiase via countout at 647. So kind of a short main event there. They gave the most time to the Rougeaus against Brett and Neidhart. But for God's sake, 1201? Then again, I have been talking about how the Boston Garden was ridiculously hot. And even if they had the show at 8.30, it was probably still going to be warm on August 6th. Although not as warm as it was yesterday, as this show drops it. At Logan Airport in Boston, it reached 100 degrees, which it rarely, rarely ever happens. I believe the last time was 2011. As they go into what's going to be on Superstars next week, I don't, I'm not going to concern myself with that. But at the end of the video, there is a very... Brief sliver, about .17 seconds of Vince doing the Chamber of Commerce thing, letting them, letting everybody know that Crosby, Stills, and Nash are coming to Lacrosse, Wisconsin, <laughs> and indeed they did on their 1988 tour. And that'll do it for WWF Superstars of Wrestling from July 30th, 1988. Before I do my usual plugs for other shows, I do have a couple of other things that I have appeared on recently that will either be released soon or were just released on the Place to Be Nation Pop Experience. I will be on the Year in Pop 1990, which I believe may be dropping next Thursday, I think it is, on the 8th, and go, go covering everything in that year from John Major to Major Dad. At least that was my intro line that I said, because those are the two things from that year that I thought of that I could connect in that sort of way. So check that out. And, of course, on the Jenny position, you heard about Pluto podcast, looking at stuff from Pluto TV with Jennifer Smith. We watched a couple of episodes of Family Ties. Now, you heard the intro to uh, the closing credits theme to Family Ties I at the top of the show. Yes, I did talk about that during the podcast, as well as singing the opening theme song rather, rather badly. So do check that out. I, I don't know if that's dropping this week or next week, but do be on the lookout for that. Hit the subscribe button for Jenny Position and Place to Be Nation Pop Experience. And, of course, the Our Vantage Point podcast, which is now back 10 episodes ahead of me, 229. We have been robbed of their wonderful Twitter clips at OVP Podcast on Twitter, but making up for it with pictures and podcasts as well, because they're still going every week. This week, they look at 
Tony Schiavone versus Jim Ross, which is an interesting concept. Now, a couple of days after that episode drops, Jim Ross goes on AEW Dynamite and calls it WWE Dynamite. I can't really comment if this kind of stuff happens all the time because I don't watch Dynamite on even a semi-regular basis. But Jim Ross might be at the point of his career, kind of like Marv Albert on the NBA telecast here. He got a lot of criticism on Twitter. I mean, he's 80 years old, so he's a hell of a lot older than Jim Ross, but uh, JR has got a lot of miles on him. He's also kind of like Ned Martin, who was a Red Sox announcer for like 30-plus years, and then eventually, like his last year, which was 92, he was just forgetting names left and right. There was a 19-inning game in Cleveland that I think pretty much did him in. It, It just lasted too long. Also, the OVP guys looked at the aforementioned June 18th, 1988 superstars. So do check that out after you, after you check out my episode 22, of course, because you know I, I covered that one. Was it episode 22 or was it episode 24? I've, I've forgotten what, when I did stuff. Uh, oh, it's 24, apparently. 22 was when I did July of 84, the Cindy Lauper, Piper's Pit thing. Anyway... On the sportscasters, my good pal Steve Bennett. He's got John Wertheim on his latest episode. He's got a book out, Glory Days, Summer of 1984, 90 Days That Changed Pop Culture. Everything from Springsteen's Born in the USA album to the Olympics, which the U.S. dominated because the Soviets no-showed, and a whole bunch of other things. Because the Olympics were big for Carl Lewis and well, kind of, I don't want to say the coming out party for Michael Jordan, but it was the point where... Everybody realized, oh crap, maybe he shouldn't have been the number three pick. Maybe maybe Portland shouldn't have taken him at number two. So that mistake was kind of recognized early on. And Steve with the 24-inch podcast looking at the career of Hulk Hogan with his co-host Dave Rollins. Their most recent is looking at the era around, actually kind of similar to this one. Apparently 88 is is going around, and I kind of caught that fear. They're looking at that match that Hogan had with Boris Zukov on Superstars right before Memorial Day in 1988. So do check that out. I'm it's a li- I'm a little bit despondent here because the last several days in New England, it's been extremely hot. As I said, 100 degrees at Logan Airport recently. And then we're going to get to the holiday weekend. It's going to rain and be 60 degrees the entire time. So I'd love to find a happy medium. But while I wait for that, why don't I do a quick edition of YouTube Comment Theater? Now, as always, these are actual comments left by, I presume, actual YouTube users. And I said this would be a quick edition, but then I remembered, oh yeah, this is a video that I've had in my queue for a very long time. And there are 142 different comments. So obviously, I'm not going to cover all of them, because most of them are just kind of claptrap nostalgia sort of thing. Now you say, well, Winston, you, you traffic in that for your podcast. Well, I do try to avoid, you know, just wallowing in it too much. So we'll just start with Boz Carson, who says, 88 through 90 was pretty good wrestling then. The legend wrestlers wrestled better, and the TV plot was pretty good. Looked pretty tough. Okay, maybe in English next time. I, I think I had an easier time understanding Boris Zukov than that guy. Night Warrior Alive says, at 345, you see Shiki Baby doing a gut wrench suplex. You don't see much of those moves anymore. Yeah, I don't know if Lesnar, when he was doing the Suplex City bit, would ever do a gut wrench suplex. It was just German suplex after German suplex. Like, uh, uh, all right, 
you know, it, you can't call yourself, you know, oh, he's going to suplex city, and then you do one kind of suplex for the entire match. Rico Dakid, the kid, says, Man, that intro brings me back. I remember this when I was a kid Saturday afternoon on Fox 5. Of course, it's all capital letters as well. I don't know something wrong with that guy. Terminat1 says, I thought that DiBiase didn't like anyone else other than Virgil touching his money. I guess he wasn't about to turn Andre away, though. No, that's a good point. I mean, Andre was bought and paid for and then sold back to Heenan by this point, and that's why Bobby is kind of back in the picture. Michael Leahy says, Bad News Brown was ahead of his time as a heel. Well, good. I'm glad somebody else says so. This comment is from five years ago, and I have pretty much spent the last four and a half years on this podcast saying the exact same thing. Kalamo says, Savage is the world champion, but yet they play Hogan's music instead. Well, that's an unfair comment because Savage comes out for the interview and then he introduces Hogan as his tag team partner. What the hell are they supposed to do? It's not like you know, Savage got trucked or something and Hogan, you know, Hogan's coming out to his music and Savage has to walk alongside. Don't worry. There's still plenty of time for that in 1995 WCW. Tom Hood says Sheik made a comeback that lasted about a month. And yeah, that, that is pretty much accurate. Horizon Today says, Wow, now all the subtle insults that Jesse used to throw at Vince make sense. His comment toward the end of Valentine's match was insanely biting now that it's well known that Vince was running WWE even back then. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even want to get at that. It was the Emily Hot Body and the residuals on VHS tapes that really, really hit home. And Kalamo also says, We are fighting for the same lady. Good choice of words, Hulkster. That could be interpreted in so many different ways. I see why religion is so controversial. The way things are written and the way things are said can be totally different. LOL. I didn't even cover the fact that you fight how you could interpret the things different ways. But, yeah, I mean, this is really just planting the seeds for that sort of thing where he's saying, Oh, yeah, she's my manager now. Did you clear that? I don't know. Horizon Today also said, This is the, this was the beginning of Bret Hart's push. He was alone on a WWF magazine cover. Yeah, I, I did mention that. Also how, yeah, Nightheart wasn't even on that. So, clearly, one guy has stepped forward. Dunedin says, Scott Casey. Ah, oh, man, I love the jobbers who got clobbered on Saturdays. Iron Mike Sharp was my all-time favorite, though. Well, those guys were maybe a little bit of a cut above jobber where maybe accorded certain levels of respect. Casey and Sharp were probably on the same level, same part of the pecking order, but one of them on the face side and the other on the heel side. And that'll do it for you two comment there because I can't stand to read any more of these freaking nostalgia ones. I don't have any further update on the future of the podcast here. I'm sure at some point I'll go back to doing these every single week. But for now, like I said, it's summer. People are doing other things. I'm doing other things. Although next time I'd probably do a non-WWF podcast because I've done quite a few of them in a row. I'm not sure what I might do. Apparently Smoky Mountain has been added, I guess, in small form to the WWE Network on Peacock for which... You know, the fact that we have to wait for all this stuff that was there originally is just absolutely insane, especially the Saturday Night's main event that just drives me crazy. If somebody had, if they had added it, I would hope that somebody would reach out to me and tell me, 
because I I don't I haven't been on Peacock in probably twelve days. That's that's how much I dislike. Actually, I was on there last weekend, but only only the one time. So it's much more infrequent than when I could just pull up the channel on my Roku. And I know I complain about that every single time now, but you know it it, it does it does suck compared with how it used to be. But you know what doesn't suck? Five star review for Grease Town on Apple Podcasts or Apple whatever the hell it's called, and wherever fine podcast reviews are accepted. I'm stumbling over myself because it provides us no social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this particular podcast. I thank you so much for listening and tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greetings from Hallandown. Seen that one. I'd like to add water your mouth. Oh!